Well, good evening, all of you. A lot of people scurrying around, getting a lot done, look like today. Then some went off to play. I, uh, some took their first real four-wheeler ride today up in the mountains and so on, and I think we created some monsters. <coughs> you kind of get hooked. I hear that uh, Sandy may not even get a kitchen because Will needs a four-wheeler. <laughs> That's just a joke, Sandy. <coughs> but I do have a hard plate you can borrow. <coughs> Well, more seriously, uh, Bill Durkee has been down pretty sick for several days, and uh, Vicky's afraid it's gone in pneumonia. His lungs are in pretty bad shape, and it sounds like he's heaving from clear to the bottom of them, if not even lower, uh, when he's coughing. So he's in pretty bad shape, and uh, please pray for Bill. And while that may be serious enough, and is, we have a situation that I think is worsening, and uh, I want to say a few things about that. Uh, we are all very familiar with Mr. White over here and uh, the situation with his health. And the last few days, he's getting where he can hardly breathe. He has to gasp for breath. And I know this morning, he was very pasty looking. He just was not getting enough oxygen. And his legs have been pretty swollen. And I don't know for sure what it is, uh, whether it's uh, heart failure or whether it could be uh, allergy or something that's in addition to the condition that he already has. And I've been thinking about it a little bit today, and I know we've all been praying uh, frequently uh, for Dale and for others around because we are getting older and sicker. And... We trust in God's deliverance. Now, we have been in somewhat of a defensive posture, I think, in some respects. We recognize that we all slumped into Laodiceanism, and as part of the ten virgins, we've all slumbered and slept. And we've been in the process of trying to shake ourselves awake and begin to see God in the way that we should. And I think you here have made some sacrifices. Uh, you've given up homes and lands and friends and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and even a case or two, uh, a mate, in order to follow the instructions God has given. And in anointing, I know I've expressed my feelings toward God and how he has turned his face from us because of our Laodiceanism. And he has been intervening a little here and there just to keep us alive and keep us going, but we've not seen the kind of healings that we would like to see. But he knows in his wisdom when that will come, but he has promised to be our healer. And he says we will come and pray the prayer of faith that we will be healed. Well, there is a time of great healing coming, and I think that's obvious from Joel and from Acts 2, that at the end of the age, these things will happen, and many scriptures in Isaiah and many others that we have read. But maybe it's time to change our approach a little bit. We've been <clears throat> praying, God heal, I don't know when the time will come. But we read the scripture the other day in Hebrews where it says, Come boldly 
to the throne of Christ. And maybe we've been to this point a little whiny, a little mealy-mouthed, not quite sure when or how to go about it. But I think we've reached crunch time in the lives of one or two or three, and that given normal circumstances, life expectancy may be growing rather short because of the advancement of disease and so on. So if it's crunch time, then it's time to act like it's crunch time. Now, I wrestled with this last night and some more again this morning as I was thinking about it. And my feeling is this. I can't go to God in boldness based on my record. And none of us can. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when we consider ourselves and the fact that God is working at humbling us right now and destroying our pride, we can't go and say, God, look what we've done. Surely you must want to shine your face on us. We're so wonderful. I can't do that. I don't have the confidence to do that. My record isn't that good. It isn't that good daily. Now, how can we come under these conditions and the turmoil and the confusion and the scattering that is occurring boldly before the throne of God as we reach a time where it appears some may not have much longer to walk this earth if things continue to deteriorate at the present rate? And there is only one answer to that. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And he has paid the price for our sins. We're at the time of Passover when the lesson is being driven into our minds from his word and by the things that we're rehearsing through the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread to show what he did for us. And we cannot come to him because of what we are, but we can come to God because of what Jesus Christ is. This day pictures the day that he was accepted of the Father. He died on a Wednesday. He was resurrected late on a Saturday. And on Sunday, he ascended to the Father and came back, having been accepted. So the Father accepted what he had done, and it accepted, or he accepted the expiation of our sins, the forgiveness and the going away of our sins. So it is based on what he did and his perfection that we can approach God in a bold way. We can go to him and say, Father, not me, but my Savior. And I can approach your throne through him, by him, because of who he is and what he has done. He is accepted. He now sits at the throne of the Father on his right hand, and he is overseeing this whole process. So I think we need to step it up a notch and come to God on behalf of many who are sick, many who are afflicted, downtrodden, and have problems, and do it in a bold fashion through Christ. So let's not look at ourselves, let's look at him. Peter, remember, 
did walk on water as long as he looked at Christ. And the minute he looked down at the waves and himself and said, I can't do this, he couldn't. Because he couldn't. So that's, I really think, where we are. We've got to get our eye on Jesus Christ. We have to look to him with strength, with confidence, with faith, and boldness. And come boldly through Christ. And that's what Hebrews is really saying. That we have a high priest that cannot be touched. And therefore, since we have him, we can come boldly. And that really is the crux of this matter. The church and the condition we've been in simply, by our works, can't be justified. But through his, we can. And his perfection and living a perfect, mature life. So, I guess what I'm saying here is, let's change our approach. Let's come far more boldly. Let's claim those promises and hang on to it. Another thing I might bring up is Jacob. Uh, remember how he wrestled with Christ, and he just flat hung on all night long. And Christ finally just put his hip out of joint. The man may have walked with a limb the rest of his life as a result of that, to show what he had been through. So we're to take hold on salvation and take hold on Jesus Christ. Maybe we've tried to do too much on our own. and You know, we've been trying, we've been working, we've been seeking to overcome and grow, and that is good, and we should do that. But we need to show faith in him. And I have an awful lot more confidence in him than I do in me. So, on that basis, you can have that kind of confidence. He couldn't heal in Nazareth because the people simply didn't believe it, didn't believe in him, didn't believe it could be done. Other people, <clears throat> even Gentiles, Christ had to remark about the woman and said, I've not seen such faith, no, not in Israel. So, why don't we have that kind of faith? Maybe we look a little too much ourselves, at ourselves and our deficiencies, and maybe partly that is my fault, because I've been trying to point out our sins and lift my voice like a trumpet and let us know what our sins are, and indeed we're instructed to do that. But at the same time, you can get discouraged if that's all you look at, and we need encouragement in Jesus Christ. So we're on the road to doing what we need to do, but I'll tell you right here and now, we'll never reach maturity and perfection on our own. Each and every one of us sins in some way, I dare say, every day, if not multiple times every day. Something goes through our heads. It's the work of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit, whether it be mercilessness or unforgiveness or impatience or... Uh, rancor or pride or spite or ego or, I, you know, I go on and on. We suffer those things daily, and Christ never did give in to them. So there is a lot of strength and a lot of power in him that we simply don't have in ourselves. So it's not going to be by our goodness that these things happen. And indeed, I remind us, as I've quoted several times in Isaiah 54, where it talks about all the blessings returning after chapter 53 and, and all that Christ went through. It says at the end of the chapter, their righteousness is of me. 
So it's not your righteousness or mine, because the best we'll ever be able on our own to achieve is filthy rags. So it's got to be his righteousness in us and through us. And that's where confidence and boldness comes from. So if you've had trouble praying in full faith and belief, let's let's switch our eyes a bit away from our lacks, because that's what Peter looked at. You know, he, he could see that he lacked. And he did. So the fact that he did lack did not keep him from walking on water. He was insufficient. He was carnal. He wasn't even converted yet. He didn't have God's Holy Spirit even. Neither did the Gentile who had more faith than he'd seen in Israel. But he could do it as long as his eyes were on Jesus Christ. And that's what this is all about. Get our eye on him and not on our lacks. Because when I look at myself, how can I go boldly to God? I look at myself and I say, man, I bow my head, I turn my face to the ground. I can't look up to God based on my righteousness. He'd laugh me to scorn. But I do have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who died for me and now lives for me. So maybe I'm rambling here a little bit, but these are thoughts that were have been on my mind for a few days, actually, that we need some encouragement and strengthening in him instead of looking at ourselves too much. Yeah, we have to examine ourselves, and we do have to put sin out during this period of time, and I've been spending quite a little time on that, and I think that is meet in due season and correct. But let's not, <clears throat> let's not overlook what makes it possible for the sin to go away. Because that's really what this is all about. Not us, but him. He is our Passover. He is the one that died. He is the one that was resurrected. He is the one who was accepted this very day. Those many years back, but this is the anniversary of it, of the Father, and certainly has everything needed to create salvation for us and to create healing for us. So... Let's step it up a notch in him and continue to work on ourselves, yes, but it is by grace through faith that we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, and we have nothing to boast of. But we are created according to good works as well, so that is certainly important. But it's through him. I mean, you can have good works day in and day out, but you're still going to sin, and one sin brings death. That's the penalty of one sin is death. So it requires Jesus Christ's sacrifice as a continuing sacrifice so that we don't die. But it's pardon that comes through faith. And how is that faith applied? Well, that faith is applied through our believing with all our heart that God can save us, that God can heal us. That's what it's all about. So I take very seriously the health situations we're facing. 
through various things, heart problems, diabetes, you name it. Uh, we're a sick and dying people for the most part. And we need to find God in all this. We get our eye on God. And fully expect miracles. But you can't fully expect it unless you fully believe it and you can come boldly. And that's that's what I think we need to begin to do. There's a difference between boldness in Christ and presumption in our sins. I can't presume to go to God on my merit, but I certainly can on Christ. So I've said that about six different ways, and I'll leave it at that. But I hope we'll take that to heart in, in our prayers these next days and imploring God. I'm going to take a little bit different <clears throat> angle tonight uh, on what we've been in. This is still the same in that series on the standard God sets for us. And we've talked a lot about coming out of the world. But I want to go through quite a few different scriptures this evening and uh, see if we can put it together maybe a little more completely than we have and just skipping from scripture to scripture because there simply has to be a difference. Let's go to John 15, first of all. Now, we read this the other night, but this is a good time to focus on some of these scriptures, not just brush by them, but focus on them. John 15, and I want to start in verse 18. <clears throat> if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, the world is going to come to absolutely hate us with passion. That is what is going to come. We need to be ready for it, and we need to understand what our relationship with the world ought to be. The relationship is going to be completely destroyed. It hated him enough to kill him, and it's going to hate us enough to kill us. What kind of relationship at this point, right here at the end of the age, with the storm clouds gathering, should we have with the world around us? If you were of the world, the world would love his own. As I've said, if we look like them, think like them, act like them, react like them, do the things they do, think the things they think, they'll love us. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there had to be a separation. He's called us out of. He's told us to be transformed in mind, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, not to think like the world thinks at all. That is the standard that he has set. It's the standard he, he lived. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. They didn't keep his saying, and they won't keep ours. They won't pay any attention to us. But all these things will they do to you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me.
it goes on down here somewhere to say that they'll kill us thinking they do God service. I'm not going to look that one up. But in their warped view of God and the wrong false God that they worship, they will think that they are honoring the true, true God when they kill us. Now notice Revelation 13.8. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. I've got quite a few and I want to get on through them tonight and finish this particular section and this thought. This is sort of a review here in Revelation 13, verse 8, talking about the beast. It was given to him, verse 7, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Pity man have an ear, let him hear. So everyone but us will worship the beast. Roughly six and a half billion people will worship the beast. And only maybe a few thousand will worship God. Incredible odds, isn't it? Is the majority always right? <laughs> we are a very, very small minority of what is about to happen. So that's our attitude. First John 5. First John 5. Verse 19. First John 5:19. And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in wickedness. Now, we're not special in one sense. We're the weak and the base called out of the world. But we are special, again, because of Christ and because of his calling. It's the same principle I was talking about a little earlier. We can't come because of our goodness and our righteousness. We can come because of him. And we are of God. The rest of the world lies in wickedness. So again, we're a very small minority. We'll be persecuted, chased, killed if they catch us. Protected if we're accounted worthy. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And here I want about verse 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. The world around us does not know what it worships. They think they worship the true God, but they're sacrificing to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So the world around us is worshiping Satan even though it doesn't know it, says the whole world will worship the beast and Satan. And God does not want us to have fellowship with devils. That should become very, very plain. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You, you can't drink out of two cups. You can only drink one cup. The right one or the wrong one? You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So it makes it very clear that there is a separation between us and the world. We simply cannot be. If we go the way they are and we partake of this world, 
then he says we are putting them ahead of God, and we're putting Satan ahead of God. So it's a form of idolatry is what it is. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we strong or stronger than he? He is a jealous God, visiting the sins upon the second and third, or third and fourth generation of them that hate him. Very jealous. And he does not want us to have any part of this world, or we'll die with it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> verse 14. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Now, we've often used this uh, about marriage, about dating, about business relationships, about anything where we are yoked together with people of the world. And God says, don't do that. Well, don't we all know this? Why should I have to bring this up? Well, I'll tell you, in the last three or four months, I've heard of people who have gone to the feast with us the last year or two or three or four, who are either have married or are about to marry outside God's truth. That's pretty prominent right now, this moment, tonight. If you walk with the world, if you fellowship with the world, if you date the world, what does it lead to? It leads to relationships that lead to marriage. And then you find yourself unequally yoked. And then you find yourself in trouble because you want to do things one way and your unequal yoke partner wants to do things another way. And you might fight over it and get along and survive. But then when kids come along, how are we going to raise them? According to the truth? According to the church? According to God? According to the world? And then the stakes get higher. Stakes get a lot higher. We have one right here tonight who is with us. Her husband is in another group. I mean, they were married long before this separation occurred. But she is going through an awful lot to obey God's Word, to be away from her children because of this very thing. And that's not even in the world in that sense, but just a different branch of the church. An unequal yoking can occur even in the church because of different ideas, beliefs, approaches, and focuses. And we are not untouched by these things. God doesn't want us touching the world. He doesn't want us to get pulled together with them in any way. I was in a business partnership with a man, well, I like to think of two of them, two different deals involved an awful lot of money. And they were not willing to follow God's ways, even though they were in the church. And it created serious problems. Never again will I do such a thing. Let's go on. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? 
The two simply don't mix. And what communion has light with darkness? You don't commune together. You don't walk together. You don't do things together with darkness. We are of the light, not of the darkness. What concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, one that doesn't believe? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the whole world worships idols, and ultimately they worship Satan. We've already read that. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus Christ lives his life in us. And I'll add that to what I said a little earlier. I hope that part was taped along with this. That it is in him that we have strength and power to do these things. In him living in us, working through us. And he has no concourse with the world. He has no concourse with Satan. He puts Satan down. He qualified to rule the world, but he's coming back to do it very shortly. And we're his temple. And the conclusion is, verse 17, since we're of God and the world is of Satan and the whole world worships the devil, wherefore come out from among them and be you separate. Separate from the world. Don't have concourse, don't have communication, don't have communion, don't have fellowship, don't have friendship with the world. He uses those exact words in different scriptures. Be you separate, says the eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Implying that if we do touch the unclean thing, he will not receive us. He's setting a standard here of what our relationship with the world should be. Don't touch it, and I will receive you, and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Is that plain or what? All right, let's go on to 1 John 1. 1 John 1. We've been to 1 John, but this is a different part of the book. 1 John 1, and I'll begin in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this shows what level our fellowship should be on to start with. This is number one. Be sure that we have fellowship, communion, concourse, closeness to, communication with, and a deep relationship with the Father and the Son. And these things write we to you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we've heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He has no connection, in that sense, to the world. What did Christ say to the disciples? You I have called friends. I've elevated you to that level. You got Christ for a friend. 
What really more do you need? But let's go on. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, and the world walks in darkness, if we walk in step with them, we lie and do not the truth. If you say you worship God, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you walk in stride with the world, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The whole world is deceived. They will all worship the beast except us. We have to be utterly different than the world. If you don't even touch the unclean thing, you're not really walking with it, are you? And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the thought that I made earlier about the boldness that we can come, not in our record, not in our works, but in His, in His sacrifice and His resurrection. We're not clean on our own, so it's hard to go with confidence and boldness and faith to God. But He was perfect. So why can't we go in boldness and faith and strength and power? Because of Him. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we go to God and we ask forgiveness. In Him, we believe that, we're willing to admit that we have faults. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ours, as good as it gets, is filthy rags. But he says in Isaiah 54 again, our righteousness is of him. That's the only way we can be a judge righteous. And that's the only way we need to be a judge righteous. All right, let's go on to verse 15. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. You can't have affection for the world. You can't have affection for the things that are out there in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now we need to assess our own minds honestly and truthfully what things in the world we still like or love. Honestly. For all that is in the world, everything out there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now is it becoming clearer why we have to get rid of all pride in every form? It isn't of God, it's of the world. The world passes away and the lusts thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last time. This is far more true now than it was when John wrote this. And as you have heard that an antichrist shall come, even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. A lot of people have left the church, went out from us, but they weren't ever really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. 
But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. There was a difference. They were here. They gave it lip service, but it wasn't from the heart. They didn't really believe it, and they weren't fully committed. The world was still in them. They hadn't, get it up, they hadn't gotten it out. It wasn't where they are today. Could happen to us. Can't let it happen. Let's go to James. I went here the other day, but I want to read this in the same in this same context of what we're talking about tonight. James four, <clears throat> verse four. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. If we have friendship with this world and the people in it, then we have created enmity between God and us. And I don't want a failed relationship, a breached relationship with God. So we have to get rid of any friendship with the world. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. How strong can you put it? If you're a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. Anybody here want to be an enemy with God? I think not. First John, well, let's see, I already read that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Now, we'll get to the one here in a little bit about being a light to the world. But let's establish here what our relationship with the world should not be. 1 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> this is the context here in verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8 about the man with the incest and about keeping the leavening out of our lives and this worshiping with sincerity and truth. Let's pick it up in verse 9. I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. I mean, you will encounter people in the world, and people in the world do the things that he just talked about. So you can't completely get away from them without absolutely leaving the world, you know, going to Mars or somewhere. But now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. We have read this. How often have we actually done it? Someone who says he's in the church and is a brother, if he's a fornicator, if he has a problem with covetousness or idol of some kind or an angry person who talks against others, that's what a railer is, or a drunkard, someone who drinks too much, or an extortioner, one who will do what he can to get money from someone in a way that he should not do so. With such an one, know not to 
eat. In other words, don't be friends and fellowship with them. Are we willing to lay the law down in our lives and say, you're an extortioner, you're a drunk, you're an idolater, you're covetous, I can't eat with you till you repent. Pretty harsh words. <laughs> Pretty hard to do. And you have to make that judgment, don't you? You have to make that judgment. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody's repented of something and aren't that way anymore. Like this man that this context is talking about, then you accept him back because he's repented, he's been forgiven of Jesus Christ, and he isn't that way anymore. Then he can be your friend and brother again. But if they're acting like the world, doing the things the world is doing, God says don't fellowship, don't eat. That's what eating is, is fellowshipping together. Having them in your house or you in theirs. Well, now what about Christ? People will bring that one up. Didn't he eat with the Pharisees and the publicans? Yes, he did. But was it a buddy-buddy situation? Was it fellowship and friendship that he had with them? Almost every case you'll read, it was a protagonist situation. He was Messiah. They were Pharisees and Sadducees, and it was usually climbing all over them. Yeah, he went in. He had meals with them at times, but he didn't pull any punches with them. And we are not Christ. We have not been sent as a witness against the Pharisees and the Sadducees today. And we're being warned here by many scriptures, by many different authors in the Bible, and we will get to some by Jesus Christ himself, which tell us, not to be friends with the world or to associate with the world, and especially if someone be called a brother and acts like the world, we're not to show friendship and fellowship and even eat with them. There is incredible peer pressure if anyone wants to follow through on it and do what Paul tells us to do here, that Christ made part of the Bible and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and righteousness. And then he goes on to say, put away from you a wicked person who is not willing to walk the way God walks. Revelation 18, 4 through 5. We already know this one. We quote it fairly regularly, but I'll read it again in this context. Revelation 18:4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people, that you be no not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues." This is an end-time prophecy. We're in the end time. And he says, "Be separate from her." Because if we do partake of her sins, we will partake of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. From there, I want to flip back to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Go you forth of Babylon, flee you from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing, declare you, tell this. 
utter it even to the end of the earth. This is something that needs to be proclaimed loudly and widely. Say you, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now, I'm not here tonight going through these scriptures to condemn us. What I'm doing is going through these to show us what we need to do to be redeemed by God. I want to bask in his glory. I want him to be happy with us. I want him to bless us as we have never been blessed before. And these are the things that we have to do. We have to separate from the world and walk with Christ. Walk as he walked. We're setting a pretty high standard here of what, where we have to go and what we have to do. Isaiah 52, just a few pages over. Verse 11, Isaiah 52, 11. Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence. Now, he's talking here in the context about Babylon, about the world, having the yoke on us and us laying down and letting it walk on us. We've been, over, been here many times. Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. How much dirt, how much sin, how much worldliness, how much of the attitudes of the world do we permit ourselves? God says don't even touch it. He tells us in the book of Haggai to make a difference. Maybe that's not in my notes, but maybe I should go there briefly. This is the book of Haggai, a prophecy about the church and about, frankly, our part in the church right now. We are doing what God says to do, leaving our homes, coming here, living in trailers, living in houses we throw up quickly, whatever, to come here to work in the temple of God. That's why we're here. We're not here to save our miserable, flea-bitten lives and hides. We are here to build the temple. We need to keep that firmly in mind. If we don't understand that and believe that, then we're here for the wrong purpose. We might as well not even be here because we're not going to get our hide saved unless we do what we came here to do. And that's what it tells us here in the first part of Haggai. But let's not get too far astray on that. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11. Thus says the eternal of hosts, ask now the priest. Now here's a problem, okay? We're in the book of Haggai. We're here to build a temple. God is laying out that he is going to bring a remnant together. He's going to provide leadership for it. And if we will fear not and work and be strong and of good courage, that he will empower us to build his temple. But there must be somewhat of a problem. Verse 11, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? The priest answered and said, No. You can have the word of God, you can have knowledge of Jesus Christ and his flesh, which was flayed for us, his sacrifice, all that he did. You can have that in your pocket. You can have that in your mind. But if you touch other things, that holiness that you carry will not make them or that holy. 
It is an axiom that is correct that darkness pollutes light rather than light overcoming darkness. You may be a light to the world, but you cannot have concourse with the world. If you touch the world, it will pollute you. If you have God's way in holiness and you touch the world, you will not make them holy. It will not happen. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It hates God. It does not understand or discern spiritual things. And the whole world, as we read in Revelation 13, is going to worship the beast, all six and a half billion of them. And only a few thousand will turn loose of the world. Do not think that you can influence the world to righteousness by touching the world. It will not happen. With you, with your children, with your mate, with your friends in the church. Let's go on and read the rest of this. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body, by sin, by anything else, we can bring this forward in the New Testament principle, if anything, or if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So, if we are seeking God's way and we touch the world, we will be unclean. This isn't ceremonial cleanness here. This is a prophecy for the end time church and not only, not even worldwide. This is a prophecy for the latter temple, the one that we are in the very beginning stages of building. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Eternal, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Now do you begin to see why he says, come out from her, my people. Don't touch her. Don't fellowship with her. Don't be friends with her. Don't have anything to do with that which is unclean. See no evil. Hear no evil. I think we had be best be very, very circumspect what we listen to over the radio waves, the video waves, the audio waves, what we look at in the malls what we buy, what we touch. If you ever want to have a part with God, you cannot have a part with the world. You can't get more timely than Haggai. Jeremiah 51. We haven't quite gotten there in the series on Jeremiah. We're almost there. But let's read one verse in connection with this. Right here at the end, Jeremiah 51 Verse 6, flee out of the midst of Babylon. This, is, this means hurry. Don't just walk away. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Let's understand. I've said this before, but this is a good place to reconfirm it. 
you want drama, if you want dramatic healings, if you want dramatic blessings from God, when we reach the dramatic stage of what is just ahead, it will be dramatic, both positive and negative. If you see dramatic healings on one hand, you will see dramatic war, pestilence, and famine on the other hand. He is going to bless those who obey him, and he is going to curse those who disobey him. Now, we saw in Acts 2 very dramatic healings. Just the shadow of Peter and John walking by caused people to be dramatically healed. And yet at the same time, when Ananias and Sapphira lied, they were dramatically killed. Are we ready for drama? Are we ready for God to do dramatic things? I just implored us to go boldly before God, for Dale, for Dennis, for Bill, for you, for me. And we can have that boldness in Christ. But we better be ready. We better take on his righteousness and go to God under the cover of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because in our righteousness it won't work. Through his it can. We're created under good works, but only his righteousness and his life can save. And it's only through him that we can be accounted worthy to escape the things that are coming. It isn't because of our own merit and our own goodness. This can't happen that way. So let's be bold but in being bold, if we're going to walk on water like Peter did with his eyes on Christ. If we're going to be bold, we'd also be better ready for the plagues that come on this world. Because if we don't take on the righteousness of Christ, we're going to be in the middle of it. If we touch this world, we will not escape it. Escape our sins and you'll escape our plagues. Walk hand in hand with the world, be a friend of the world, and you will partake of those plagues. Zechariah 2, this again, following the book of Haggai, is right now for you and me. Right now. Zechariah 2. Here I want verse 6. Ho! Or hey! Or attention please! Come forth! Flee from the land of the north, from Babylon, the Chaldean, the way of this world, paganism says the eternal. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the eternal. That's where we are right now. God has scattered us around the world as a church. He is just about to physically scatter Israel, physical Israel. So this is right now. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Got to deliver ourselves. Got to get away. Remember the Southwest Airlines commercials? Want to get away? Putting a pretty sad predicament in some cases, embarrassed, so they've spent millions of dollars on some pretty cute ads about wanting to get away from embarrassing situations. Well, I don't want to be embarrassed to be left behind when God's people are protected. I want to get away. 
But we got to do those things which would cause God to help us get away. And he, he puts this onus on us right here. He says, you get out yourselves. There again, back to Isaiah 52. Don't go hastily, but go. Because there's a time period. There's going to be a time when it's too late. Then you'll run for it, and maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Did I read John 15:19? I think I did. If you rob the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world. The world hates you. We did read that. Let's go to Matthew. Some more of the words of Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and the world. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. We've already read scriptures that said that directly. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, mankind, the way of this world. You just can't serve both. James puts it, you can't drink both bitter and sweet water out of a fountain. The bitter will pollute the sweet. The bitterness will come out. And if you try to walk the fence or straddle the fence with the world, God says it won't work. The world will have its way with you. Now, we are, we are facing, in one sense, what Christ faced when he faced Satan, aren't we? Satan tempted him, tried him, tried to get him to turn from his father. Christ took that very, very seriously. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he was able or ready to face Satan. And yet we have a world here that Satan has deceived, the whole world, and we are preparing to stand up against that world and to have the faith to walk the walk of Jesus Christ. Now, I haven't fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and you haven't either. But we're facing the same enemy. And I do not have the strength Christ had, and you don't either. So how are we going to do it? We're going to have to take on Jesus Christ. We're going to have to let him live in us. We're going to have to partake of him because it is only by his strength I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. That's the only way we can do it. Now, we're facing it, and we're in it. We better take on the mind of Christ. All right, let's move on here. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 2. I cut out a few of these to get the point. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, the attitude, the mind, the spirit, the action, the way, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
But the natural, the normal, average, everyday Joe out on the street receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. He can't know them. They're foolish. They're stupid. He can't know them. There's no way. So if you think you can talk somebody into going God's way or influence the world and tell them, I am of light, you're of darkness, you need to be like me, it won't work. Now, we ought to all know that by now. From friends, relatives, people we tried to convert, even people we tried to convince of something like the Passover, you know, who even have the mind of Christ to one degree or another. And they're not totally out in the world. Those out in the world, if you think people in the church are dense, check people in the world. They can't know. For they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the eternal that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The world doesn't. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. And here I want verse 15. Philippians 2, 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We have to be here in the world, can't go out of it, so we can't all together not rub shoulders with the fornicators, as it said in 1 Corinthians 5. But even though we can't leave the earth yet, we have to be absolutely blameless and harmless. The sons of God, without rebuke. And we live in a crooked and perverse nation. So we are to hold forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So yeah, we're to be a light. But light hurts their eyes. They don't want to hear it. When you shine that light in their eyes, they will hate you the way they hated Christ. That is not what friendship is made of. That's what hatred is made of. So even though we're a light to the world, they don't like it. They can't understand it. They can't spiritually discern it, as we just read. And they'll hate us for it. So being a light to the world does not mean being a friend of the world. Can we see that? If you're a friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. Uh, James 1. Verse 27, James 1, 27. Pure religion. You want to know what pure religion is? And undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now, if you want to know what truly pure religion is, without any defilement, it's defined right here. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. That's the first half. Take care of those who have need. 
and to keep himself unspotted from the world. No spots from the world. Now, when we go out on a day to work, we might put on clean clothes before we go out. But we don't look anything like we did when we went out when we come back in at night. I have grease, diesel, dirt, mud, all kinds of things that I pick up through the day as I work just around here. I cannot go out clean and put my heart into working and come back in at night unspotted. In fact, sometimes I come in pretty dirty. I'm told to take my clothes off on the back porch. I'm so spotted. And that's just from a day's work. Now, if you go out in this world with garments of holiness and righteousness, and you walk with them and are friends with them and are yoked together with them, you cannot come back in unspotted spiritually from the world. The world will spot you. Try working around someone that cusses and curses and swears a lot. You ever done that? You're around it day in and day out, hour after hour, just working with someone who cusses. It is only a matter of time until you will begin to think those same words. It is only a matter of additional time when they will start coming out your mouth. Because you've been around it and heard it and it has become a part of your thinking. If you hear the world, you'll begin to think like the world. If I immerse myself in the Word of God and study it regularly, you know what I wake up thinking about in the morning? God. If I fail to study my Bible over a period of time, and maybe watch TV or do this or do that or anything but focus on God, what do I think of when I wake up in the morning or when I go to bed at night? The things that I've been invited. You are what you eat physically. Donut boy. And you are what you eat spiritually. And your mind will go to those things. There's no way of getting around it. But we can't let the world put any spots on us. Second Peter 1. I'm about done here. Only got three pages left. Second Peter 1. Verse 4, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We already read about how the lust of the world is there, and we can't be partakers in it. Well, this, this drives another nail in that. We have great and precious promises, and if we will... Focus on those promises God has made. We'll partake of the divine nature and we'll escape the lust of the world. But if you mix with the world, you will take on the lust, the cussing, the lying, whatever they're doing that is contrary to God. You'll take it on. 
You're, you will not be influ- they will not be influenced to good. You will be influenced to bad. That's what these scriptures are saying. Second Peter two, verse twenty. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we come into God's truth, we learn about God, we get baptized. We commit ourselves to obey God. A lot of people in the church did that. We're at the point for this one being fulfilled in the church right now today. If you escape the pollution of the world, and you are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Once we start this walk, if we allow ourselves to get pulled back in any way to the thinking, the acting, the ways of the world, through concourse, friendship with them, or however, and get pulled back, we would have been better off never to have ever known the truth. It's dangerous knowledge. Well, he says it. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. A lot of people have taken this course. A lot of your friends, a lot of your relatives have gone this way. We can't let the world influence us, spot us, or pull us back. It's a sure recipe to lose eternal life. And you can lose it. Paul said that he had preached to others and he was very careful lest he himself become a castaway. First John now, let me just read that one. First John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. How much did he really love us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. We in the world just think totally differently. How can you be friends with someone that you don't think alike at all? I mean, you know people in the church, for instance, that you have trouble fellowshipping with, being friends with, because your personalities are diametrically opposed to each other. Ow! Sore finger. Getting old, I guess. Uh, you, you, you just can't get along with them well because you think so differently. And that's with people who agree on the truth. Well, look how much we disagree with the world. You can't be friends with them. You will be like them if you do. That's just where it'll go. First John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Not join forces with them, but overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's only through Christ that we can escape the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. What do worldly people speak about? Movies, their music, their work, their play, their girlfriends, married men, I mean. You know, on and on it goes. We're not on that page, are we? No. No. 
They are of the world. They speak of the world. The world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, let's go to 1 Peter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Look at the warfare he went through and what he went through in the flesh for us. Come to have the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lawlessness, in lust, excess of wine, partying, banqueting, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. If you don't think like them and do like them and go get drunk with them, party with them, they think you're strange. He's telling us right here, don't party with the world. Don't get drunk with them. Don't go to their parties. Don't go to their bars. Walk as Christ walked. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. No, it's Ephesians 5 I want. Excuse me, that didn't look right. Ephesians 5, let's begin in verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Children of disobedience for this world, and the wrath of God is about to come on them. Do you want to be near when the wrath of God comes on the world? Do you like to be nearby when lightning strikes? Do you care to be nearby so you can witness a tornado that goes through a mobile home park? Do you like to be nearby when a pit bull is chewing somebody's throat out? God's about to unleash his anger on this world. Do you want to be anywhere near it? Do you want to be thinking like it? I don't want to be associated with it, but I know what's coming. Be not you therefore partakers with them, for you were sometime darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. It isn't the fruit of the Spirit isn't out there in the world. The works of the flesh are out there in the world, not the fruit of the Spirit. Proving what is acceptable to the eternal, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now that was Christ's relationship with the Pharisees. He reproved them. He did not fellowship or be a friend with them. Do you? Did they count him a friend when he called them snakes, unwashed pots, uh, whitened sepulchers, and that type of thing? Liars, hypocrites? I think not. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. 
For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. You work with somebody out in the world, what do they talk about, a lot of them? Their sins, the things they think they're getting away with, the things they enjoy, their lusts, their greeds, their envies, their jealousies. It's a shame to even speak of those things. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. The world is dead. We're the only ones who have life in us. And the only reason we have life in us is Jesus Christ is living his life in us. It's the only way. They're dead. See then that you walk very carefully, not as fools. You're a fool if you consort with this world. Put your hand on the stove, you're going to get burned. It's that simple. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. You can fill your skin up with wine, or you can fill your skin up with the blood, the wine of Christ. You got your choice. I think that's a good thought then to close this on. See that you work, walk. Wait a minute. That was the one I was. I had in mind. Yeah. Verse fifteen. That's where I wanted to, to end it. I actually read past it. That it said, "See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise." It's easy to walk as a fool. It's easy to do the foolish things the world is doing. But we don't have time for that. We've got to redeem the time. But we've read a lot of the wisdom of God here from Paul, from Peter, from James, from John, from the words of Christ himself, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Zechariah, from Haggai. On and on and on it goes to give us wisdom and how to comport ourselves and how we must separate from and not touch the world or be a part of it in any way. Now, that is the standard that Christ is setting before us. When he says, seek him with your whole heart, he means you cannot serve God in this world. You cannot do it. If you're seeking God with your whole heart, and that's when he says we'll find him, is when we come to that point. You can't straddle the fence. You've got to seek him with your whole heart. And if you're partly seeking the ways and the things of this world, you are divided and you're not wholeheartedly seeking God. It's just that simple. So there's a real challenge here. And we must go to God and pray for the strength, the power, the courage, the faith to separate ourselves from the unclean thing. And we will be accepted. That's what he says. Okay, thank you for coming. We'll see you tomorrow night.